You're listening to Esports Demystified by Valor Esports. In this podcast, we take a weekly dive into the world of esports by interviewing the men and women that are shaping this amazing industry. Today's guest is Kate Hollis JD, but I'll pass you over to me for introduction. We hope you enjoy. Kate is an accomplished video game and esports attorney who on a daily basis deals with everything from intellectual property and trademark issues to developer agreements and esports contracts. Her work in the esports industry has been cited dozens of times by subsequent authors. Kate also recently volunteered for Gamers Outreach, a charity that empowers hospitalized children through video games. It comes as no surprise then that in her spare time, Kate enjoys video games, an obsession which in a 2015 paper, she said her family endured with tireless resolve. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Kate, where, where did your interest in esports begin? Uh, well, I've always been a, an avid gamer. I grew up, my dad was a computer programmer. And so we always had, we were famous as being that family that had multiple desktops back at a time when that was a pretty uncommon thing for a family. So we grew up uh, having LAN parties where we would play StarCraft together as a just joint family activity, which I realized as I got older was not a normal thing for people to be doing with their moms. Um, but I got to do that with my siblings and my parents' growing up. So esports was a really natural transition for me from being just a big fan of gaming itself. Um, in particular, the game that got me into it was League of Legends. So I have been playing League for several years and um, had been playing for a while right when LCS started to really take off. And so for me, it was, I was really into the uh, mechanical skill that was being displayed by some of these pro level players. And it was gratifying because I could see some of these same moves that I would try to do, but with way less success um, being performed, you know, really well at this top tier and um, realizing that this was something that, that definitely was evolving and had a huge legal need that was going to be coming along with it kind of coincided with me starting at law school. So the two, the timing just worked perfectly to where my following esports coincided nicely and I was able to develop into that space. Yeah. And it's really interesting because uh, you're in, you're in law now and I can't wait to dig into that. I know Nick's excited <laughs> um, as a man of corporate governance himself, but um, you actually started off in a bachelor of science majoring in psychology, didn't you? How, how did that, how did that come about? And then ended up where you are now? Well, law was always something that was on my radar. I, I knew that I wanted to go and do a post-grad program and psychology was something that I figured would be a good option where if I decided I just loved psychology, I could go that route, but that if I wanted to go into law, it would be useful for helping me, you know, present persuasive arguments. And certainly I think that's something that I have found to be true, that my background in psychology has really helped me to get a better understanding of what are things that are going to resonate with people and why, which I, I think has been very invaluable for me as an attorney. Yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. Um, and at what, at what point, I know you, you said you saw an opportunity there with law um, in this, in this inc when you were going through your own experience with gaming, but is there, is there a point in time that you were an action or something that happened that you went, oh my gosh, like these people need me <laughs> or they need people like me uh, to come in here? 
Uh, sure. I, I actually think that that started in law school. I took a cyber law class and unlike with all of my other law classes where the focus was, you know, here's this textbook. These cases have been around since the 1800s. We have this beautiful established doctrine of law that that you can learn about and now just be part of this great system where we know this is how tort liability is going to work. My cyber law class, we got the syllabus and it was like, here's a news article of something that just happened. Let's discuss how we think the law is going to address this. And it really quickly became apparent that the law is lagging behind considerably in terms of being able to address needs in any internet-based space. Um, and that's particularly true, I think, in esports. So for me, that was the second semester of my first year of law school, looking at that and seeing, oh my gosh, there's just, there's so little case law out there. These are really uncharted waters. Um, for even just for internet law, let alone for video game law and for esports law in particular, which is sort of a weird amalgam of those two. It was just, there was nothing being written. There was no book that you could read. There were no texts. It was very much just live reacting to situations as they were coming up. For me, and I think for a lot of lawyers, that kind of sexy, we're getting into this brand new area is very exciting, but it's normally pretty hard to find versus in internet law. And especially in this area, it's like every case is brand new and fresh. Yeah, that's super interesting. So you started doing law around 2013, if I'm right. Um, and at that time, esports was really starting, starting to boom. So in fact, I did a little bit of background research and you know, some of this came from your paper as well that we'll get into a bit later. Um, but in the same year, there was the League of Legends One World Championship, and that had, I think, 32 million viewers throughout its duration. Can you remember what that felt like at the time? Uh, at the time, it was very shocking to see how quickly it was starting to see mainstream adoption. You know, prior to that, there had been obviously an esports scene. It's not like that was the very first time that there were these major esports tournaments. But what was sort of unique about LCS and Worlds and getting that League of Legends um, component and introduction into esports is that it was suddenly able to access a wider audience in a way that had not really been possible before. And part of that has to do with the way that Riot Games had built up its esports infrastructure and advertised it and really invested heavily into making that accessible so that people who were more of casual gamers and fans could still really enjoy the experience. Um, the shoutcasters that they worked with and everything that they put into it in terms of having analysts from other teams who were established players that people knew, these are all things that, that we see in the traditional sports world. And so seeing those translated into esports was a very exciting thing. And that was for me something that I saw and thought, okay, this is something that has legs. It's not just a quick fad that's gonna go away. We're building something that's going to be around for a while. Absolutely. And, and now you've got people who build, you know, most of their online presence by being, you know, an esports commentator, which is right. would have been really interesting thinking about in 2013, which then leads me to, to mention that, you know, there are just under 140 million hours watched of the 2020 um, League of Legends World Championship. Did you ever see this kind of growth as a possibility in 2013? I mean, I know you said that it had legs at the time, but did you see, you know, this level of viewership possible? 
certainly I saw it as possible. I, I am surprised that we are here as quickly as we are. Part of the reason for that is that most games tend to have kind of a shelf life, right? So, so we have some dinosaurs that are still around, um, like at this point, Starcraft, which I mentioned growing up on, kind of an older game, and yet it still draws a pretty large number of viewers. What's interesting is that with games that develop a big esports viewership, we're seeing those fan bases continue to stay with the games. At the time in 2013, because we hadn't really seen that precedent, my thought was that we were going to have to see this, this kind of get rebuilt from scratch over and over and over again for a while before we had the infrastructure in place. And certainly there's still some element of that, right? You have franchises that exist across multiple different games, and that gives them some of that built-in longevity where you don't have to rebuild it from scratch. But certainly the fact that we have franchises like that shows you that there is still some jumping from game to game in terms of viewer interest. But what's been really remarkable to me is the way that we've been able to capitalize on that staying power as an industry and then take that and convert it into people who have stopped playing the game or who never played the game who are still following esports. And that is, I think, the difference that was really difficult to imagine at that time, because previously esports was really just people who are kind of hardcore fans. And then you started seeing like Dota came out with its kind of casual viewership shoutcasters. That was a really big deal at the time because that broke it down to people who didn't understand what any of these skill shots were, but they're being explained, okay, this is why this matters. This is why that matters. And suddenly it's a lot more accessible. It's sort of like uh, if you have a friend who's never watched, you know, a basketball game before, and you're having to sit there and explain to them in real time, hey, so this is why this is important. This is why that's important. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, if you've ever been in that position, your friend's just kind of like, whatever, where are the nachos, you know, but with esports, <laughs> it's been able to take that and develop these casual or non-player type fans who, even after maybe they've stopped playing the game, are continuing to follow these same teams and these same players, and they are still invested in it. That is the thing that I am surprised to see that we got to that point as quickly as we did, just given the history of how the gaming space has worked in the past that we can have these games that still can attract viewers, that League of Legends, the one that we were just talking about from 2013, still can get 140 million hours in 2020 is remarkable. Yeah, and I think uh, I actually heard a stat the other day, similar to, to what you're kind of leaning on there, that in Australia, in Australian-based sports, if you can have someone at a younger age participate, not, e not even directly in the sport, but something related to it for three years, uh, they more than likely, I think it's 90% of them become a member, a, you know, a customer for life to that sport. Um, so mm -hmm. if it be um, like a touch version uh, of the, of contact sport, they're still interested in the contact sport, um, which is quite interesting. And I think that must relate heavily um, to most, to most activities, including gaming. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, and I think that that is such an interesting point because we are now seeing the generations of people who grew up gaming are we're getting to a point where there's a gamer majority where more people have played games growing up than people who have not played games growing up at least in um in the us i don't know what the the stats are for australia or the eu um but but these are pretty major gaming markets that we're seeing such a huge influx of gamers and part of that of course is the accessibility of casual gaming mobile gaming has become a really big hit 
for younger generations in particular. However, what we're seeing is that because of this, it's developing that that sort of fan loyalty like you're you're describing where people are growing up playing games and then maybe they're not able to keep up with gaming. You know, I'll, I'll tell you at this point, I love gaming, but I don't get to do it very often. And it's hard to continue to play at that high level. You really have to keep up with it. So my ability to play is like basically gone. I can, I'm, I'm a filthy casual only, and that's all that I do. However, I do still have that interest. And so esports really fills that for me where I can still immediately get immersed into this hobby that I really enjoy. And I can then walk away from it a couple of hours later, having experienced all of those same highs and lows that you get when you're playing a game yourself without having to invest the hundreds of hours that it takes to maintain a high level of play. Yeah, that's, um, uh, I can definitely relate to that. So can Nick um, mm -hmm. and our other co-founder, Luke, I, don't, I think since we started this project, I don't think we've actually played a game, um, which is <laughs> <laughs> which is bizarre because it's all about gaming. But uh, right. I just wanted to put, Esports aside, just for a second, because um, you're not just involved with video game law only, you also deal with other things, um, in particular internet law space, such as user agreements, privacy policies. Um, to you, what is the most challenging aspect of that internet law space? Uh, well, this kind of goes back to what was attractive to me about internet law in the first place, uh, which is remembering back to that class that I took my first year in law school, it's all very responsive because the laws are one lagging behind legislatures are not legislating laws for internet needs that we have today. They're legislating for internet needs that existed a couple of years ago that are just finally getting enough momentum behind them for the legislature to do something. The problem is often by the time that happens, companies and users have already responded to this problem and moved well beyond it. And now they're being yanked back and forced to respond to the legislation, or you get court cases that come out where the implications are huge for internet space, but the court decision relates to someone with a brick and mortar store. Well, the court, the judge isn't necessarily thinking at the time, this is how this might affect this internet-based company. So we get these decisions that come out, we get these laws that come out that aren't necessarily one meant for internet law application in general, and two, certainly not current internet law. So you have to be really nimble and agile when you're responding to this as an attorney and very proactive with clients. So a lot of what I do involves risk analysis and providing some strategic advice where it's, okay, here are some directions that we think courts might take this new law. We don't know yet for sure which way the court's going to go. There's arguments to be made in any of these directions. However, if what we want to do is minimize your risk as a company, we can take these steps and then we can reassess in six months after some of these cases have wended their way through the courts. So really you have to be extremely reactive to live changes that are happening in a way that you just don't as much in other industries. You know, you might have one really major case that comes out in another industry in a year and it's just, everyone is just reeling as a result. Meanwhile, in the internet law space, you've got California drops a new privacy law. Now that has to be accounted for. Oh, no, wait, here comes Nevada. They've also dropped a new privacy law. And if you're operating a company that sells to a lot of customers in both California and Nevada, you're maybe not thinking about that because your company is based out of New York. But suddenly you have to make sure your website is compliant with these agreements and these these um, like pop-ups that are going to come onto your website that weren't even on your radar remotely. So because the internet is inherently global, because it 
people can access websites from all around the world. And you might have clients scattered all across the world. You have to be not only aware of the laws in your own jurisdiction, but really for the first time, what we're seeing is that people have to be aware of and incorporating laws from all other jurisdictions, regardless of whether their product is something that is really meant to be sold in a lot of these other jurisdictions if they're generating enough traffic. So that can create a lot of problems, especially for smaller startup companies. Luckily, most of the laws have some allowances for, you know, you have to have a certain number of, of users or visitors before it's going to start becoming an issue. But there are cases where you're going to be just stuck with being forced to comply with another state's law that you don't even know about, that was not even a twinkle in your eye when you were creating your company. So that, that ability to respond to these live real-time changes and then to keep in mind the way that there's going to be interactions with laws of other jurisdictions is definitely a challenge in the internet law space. Yeah, for sure. It's sort of like when, you know, when GDPR came in and everyone sort of scrambled to, to fit that in, it's kind of that, but, you know, nth degree. Um, right. Are you, do you find that often when stuff has to go to court, and I'm sort of simplifying this for my own and our viewers' benefit, um, <laughs> if a judge makes a decision based on, um, you know, let's say case law where you're looking at brick and mortar shops um, and this is an internet business. Are you finding that a lot of the time that then needs to get appealed through and, and escalate higher and higher and higher, or does it often stop at the lower level and it doesn't have to be a huge costly exercise for those businesses? Ordinarily, it's pretty rare for a case to get appealed actually. It, it seems like we have a lot of cases constantly in appeal, but if you look at the number of cases that go through the lower courts compared to the number of cases that go up on appeal, the percentage is really small. And especially when you think about what percentage of cases actually settle before they even get to the trial court. So in order for a case to go up on appeal, most of the time it has to have gone all the way through trial and something like 97% of civil cases in the United States settle before getting to trial. So if you think about, you know, it's this funnel, right? So what's the percentage of the time that cases are even going to go on appeal in the first place? When you are representing a company and a decision comes down that you think this is just, this is so wrong. This is based on a brick and mortar store. This is an internet company. The result is completely absurd or it's unfair, or this law was never meant to be interpreted the way that it's been interpreted here. You have to make a, again, risk benefit analysis determination with your client. And the reality is that most of the time when you have clients who are in that position, um, they're not going to want to take on the additional risk of appealing this just to get another judge who's not super familiar with the law to give them another unfavorable ruling. The issue is that when you have a case that you get a bad ruling in a lower court, the value of that case in terms of creating legal precedent that you have to be bound by is small. But once you get it, a ruling from the appellate court where the appeals court says, okay, we're holding that as a matter of law, internet business, you need to do X, Y, and Z. That's going to have sweeping ramifications for you and for other businesses as well. So there's always this risk that's involved in appealing that, that you don't get the result that you want, that you're then required to pay the costs for the appeal for the other side, and that you end up with really bad decisions that have a sweeping effect on your own business, where maybe you can live with a bad decision in a ruling that's just kind of a one-time thing where maybe next time we'll get a judge who will see things differently. So there's that risk to consider. 
What I'll say is that typically when we see cases that do go up on appeal, that do get these kinds of, of rulings that are internet specific cases, there's always an educational component that has to happen. Back in 2013, when I was in law school, which again is not even that long ago, uh, there were still cases coming out where the judge would start the opinion with what is the internet and then give a description. In 2013, we're still having to like go through this legal analysis of how the internet works before the judge gets to the ruling, right? So when I'm saying that the law lags behind, like, I mean, behind, like decades behind, um, a lot of times judges who are making decisions on this will be people who have been on the bench for 40 years or longer, um, people who this might be their very first time really having to rule on an internet law type case. Um, we see this a lot right now. There's been a, a big uptick in mobile gaming litigation. And what's interesting is, so for a lot of these judges, we're bypassing like traditional console gaming claims and going straight from, I have zero experience at all with any kind of video games. Now we're going to get into the weeds on how microtransactions and loot boxes work and why it matters that this game is a real-time strategy as opposed to turn-based. And, oh, we only have an hour to do this oral argument. So there, it's always a challenge and a risk anytime that you're going into a situation where you have to begin by teaching the judge how your industry works, because that means that the judge is going to be in a difficult spot to make a ruling that's going to account for all the different variables. Um, there are cases that do that, but, but like I was saying, these cases where they, where it does tend to happen because they have this huge resource load, it ends up largely being the bigger companies that, that have the bandwidth and the resources to fight on these. That's good in some ways because it does mean that you know they're going to devote the time and attention to make sure it gets done properly. It's bad in other ways. Like for example, when you're a startup and you don't have the money to be able to fund a giant appeal on a multiple year piece of litigation, are you just stuck with this not great ruling? Do you pay to get out of this case where really on the merits you should win? Um, it's, it's a tricky balance for a lot of our clients. And unfortunately, oftentimes that means that these smaller businesses are just forced to sort of follow along the, in the coattails of the larger businesses. And they really have a lot of power to dictate not only how the market works, but also how the law is going to be interpreted. Yeah. And I suppose um, just, just to close that topic off, I suppose the disappointing part of that is a lot of the time you might see that a large business won't bother um, to go with a small case that actually might be super important for a small business or a startup. Um, but yes, because yes. the startup can't afford then to go and appeal that or do anything or go through, you know, the whole trial process, it's, it just becomes this almost cycle, which is a little bit disappointing. Um, but shifting to a lighter mood, um, you volunteered for Gamers Outreach in 2019, and I believe you said you had to stop because of the pandemic. Yes. Um, that's an organization that in its own words, uh, it's on a quest to ensure that every hospital is enabled to provide kids with activities alongside care. Can you tell us a bit about your work with them? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to talk about them. They're a terrific organization and they are thankfully getting um, a, enough recognition nationally that they're starting to appear in more and more hospitals. What they do is they partner with local hospitals to provide kids who are there for long-term care, often kids who have like severe or and or terminal illnesses with access to consoles. So that instead of just sitting there watching daytime television for eight hours a day in the hospital, they get to be playing games on Xbox. Um, another thing that, that this organization does that's really neat is they have this initiative called the Player Two Initiative, 
where they get people to come and volunteer to be another player playing with the kid. So oftentimes, you know, hospitals can be very scary for kids. They can be very lonely and mainly they're just, they're not very stimulating and they're not fun for sure. And so for these kids, some of them have no understanding really of why they're there. Others are all too aware in either case, getting them access to some games so they can have a little bit of levity while they're facing some of these extremely challenging situations is just such a wonderful initiative. And I was really happy to be able to support that. So uh, they partnered with um, one of the local hospitals where I was, which was Phoenix at the time. And so the Phoenix Children's Hospital has a number of consoles um, that have been uh, provided through Gamers Outreach. And then Gamers Outreach also helps to service those consoles to make sure that they're updating them with new games and that they have all the patches that they need and that they're fully operational. And they rely fairly heavily on support from donors um, to help make sure that their library of games is always up to date so that these kids are not just stuck playing titles that are really outdated. So that, that is an organization that I really love. They do great work. I mean, it's, it's hard to find fault with let's help the kids who are sick to have a little bit more fun in their lives. Um, but I, I think just seeing the difference that that makes for those kids when instead of it just being, I'm sitting here hooked up to, to a machine in a white room with again, just daytime television or cartoons on. Now I'm getting to play this fun game. Uh, that, that makes, I think, a big difference for them. How, do, uh, how would someone, if, they, if, they, if that's something that's appealing to you, how would someone get involved? I think the first step would be if you go onto the Gamers Outreach website, you can find out there's a, an option to volunteer. If they're already in your local community, they've, they will be able to reach out to you and put you in touch with some resources. They also have a Discord server. Um, so if they've got you know, some big event coming up that, that they want support with, they, they can alert all of their volunteers and coordinate with them that way. As this group expands and gets into more and more markets. I'm hopeful that there will be more opportunities for people to get involved. Um, before I left Phoenix, I was working with um, another one of the local hospitals there to see about procuring some of these consoles so that they could work with Gamers Outreach on that as well. So always, I think there's, there's a need for volunteers, both to help service the consoles, which can be, I mean, fairly technical, but also you don't have to have any technical experience. They will train you on what you need to do for it. Um, but then also even just playing with the kids. Now, I should caveat that with I don't know how much of that part in particular is still happening right now with the pandemic because I haven't been involved with the organization for a bit. But um, certainly if you sign up as a volunteer, as those programs become available in your area, they will definitely reach out to you. All right. Perfect. Anyone that's listening, go do it. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to start jumping into a little bit more about yourself um, and about your own career. Uh, I mean, you, you kind of touched on before that 2013 was around the start of it when you were still at uni. Um, so it's actually been a relatively short time for the amount of experience you've already got, which is awesome. Um, but can you tell us some more about some of the most challenging aspects of your career so far in terms of practicing law in the esports space? Certainly. So as I've touched on, obviously, because this is such a new area of law, you do have to be very responsive. You have to be monitoring a lot of different decisions that are coming out and a lot of different legislation that's coming out in a way that you just don't have to do in most 
practices of law. Um, but the biggest thing I think for me that has been challenging is the lack of mentors available in this space. So when you graduate from law school, you have a repository of knowledge that you've accumulated during your time, but you don't have any experience in the actual nuts and bolts of practicing law, which means that if someone comes to you and says, okay, I, I need some help crafting this agreement. Okay. Well, I can tell you some case law about the theory of crafting agreements, but you're, you're reliant on attorneys who have that experience to help teach that to you, especially your first year or two out of law school. Esports is an area that because it is so new, there, there wasn't anybody who had been practicing esports law as a career, really, that I could graduate law school and then go to and say, okay, how, help me navigate this space. Fortunately, now that's starting to change and, and you're starting to see textbooks come out that are esports law specific. I actually just purchased one that just barely came out. I was very excited to see that because that's been a huge need that has not been really addressed before. Um, but so there are, there are those options now for me, my path was, I went into a law firm that was pretty well known for sports law. And there's a lot of crossover within sports law and esports, of course. The other thing that this law firm had though, was it had a, an intellectual property group, which meant that I got to have a little bit more of that interaction between some of the traditional sports world issues and some of the more IP specific issues that exist in the esports space. And then finally, the biggest thing for me actually is kind of the most surprising, which is I got to be involved in plaintiff's personal injury work, uh, which was a kind of work I found extremely rewarding. You're representing people who have been injured um, in their claims against people who caused those injuries. What that did for me was it really gave me experience working with people who are not legally sophisticated. Oftentimes in the practice of law, you're working with like, hey, we've got a contract that we want to put together. Company A and company B want to do a deal. Company A and company B have both got lots of experience in navigating deals. They both know kind of what they want to put in there. They know why they don't want to agree to certain things. They understand when just when they look at an agreement, they can immediately say, I have a problem with this. I have a problem with this. I have a problem with this. With plaintiff's work, you're usually representing people who have no prior experience with litigation at all. No real prior run-ins with the law other than, you know, the terms of service that they just didn't even read when they agreed to create an account on a website. People who don't have that legal background require a little bit of a different approach because if I go to them and I say, look, industry standard is we do X, Y, and Z. They're going to say, okay, but why do we need to do industry standard? Shouldn't we just do what sounds great to us? Why can't I add in this protection? Why can't I do that? There's a, a level of, of legalese that's just so common that you don't even hear yourself saying it most of the time. But with esports in particular, and especially with player representation, or when I'm working with content creators, a lot of times these are very young people. These are people who don't have a lot of legal background. These are people who, you know, maybe are just coming out of high school and looking at, okay, now what do I need to do to protect my rights? That's not someone that is, it's going to be helpful if I can only speak legalese to them. You know, I need to be able to break it down to here's what this looks like for you on a day-to-day -day basis. And so for me, I was really fortunate being able to come out of law school into a firm that had the sports law background, that had the plaintiff's background where I'm working with these people who are not legally sophisticated. And I got in that habit of being able to communicate about important, big legal issues with people who had had no prior legal experience. 
and then getting that intellectual property piece as well. So I really came out of that pretty well positioned, even though nobody that I was working with had esports experience, they all had something to contribute that helped me to develop kind of this, this weird conglomerate, which is esports law. No, that's really, that's really cool. I can see how you combine those together. And I mean, at Valerie Esports, we're a huge believer in the crossover between traditional sports and esports and makes a lot of sense right. how you did that. Um, you just, you kind of just also mentioned working with younger people a lot because of the industry and, and who, and who it really attracts at that, at that level. Um, you've also mentioned in the past that players have very little job security and they have a need to fight to retain their status. Um, writing in 2015 um, of the highly competitive esports industry, you mentioned that many e-athletes would train up to 14 hours a day. H- how are you finding the landscape now after, you know, seven to eight years on? It has certainly improved. Um, I think that there's still a lot of room to grow, but comparing where we were just a few years ago, it's again, pretty remarkable how much growth there has been. And there have been a few different factors that have sort of driven that growth. First of all, esports today encompasses a lot more than just players playing at that professional level. You talked earlier a little bit about the fact that shoutcasting was like, like an unheard of profession. It was like maybe three people versus now that's that's something that a lot of people are able to do. Um, esports coaching or even just player coaching at more of an amateur level or content creation through Twitch or some other streaming platforms. These are all just a few of the examples of careers that exist within esports. So when you have an industry that is less driven by your only option to make it is to be somebody playing at X level for this one game, already there's going to be a little bit of a better improvement in terms of work-life balance. Because then what happens is if you're forcing pro players to play at this level, but they could also just go and do something else and make money doing that instead, then they've got the market option to take those skills elsewhere and do that instead. There wasn't really a lot of market option uh, back in 2013, even just switching to different games. Um, there were not very many games that had an esports um, league or competition happening at, at that really high level. So now, because there's a lot more options available to players in the marketplace, both in terms of staying as players and transitioning into slightly different versions of esports adjacent careers, there's automatically going to be some quality of life improvements. But I think also as this has become more and more accepted in the mainstream, and I've commented on how surprising it is to see how quickly that has happened, but as this is getting more and more accepted, what you're seeing is there's a lot more pressure to start making these improvements to quality of life for players. You have careers now that are built around esports and esports adjacent that did not exist in 2013. So for example, you've got physical therapists who specialize in esports players and helping deal with the specific physical challenges that esports players are gonna deal with. A lot of times, you know, there's kind of this joke of esports players are not real athletes, which I definitely object to that. <laughs> uh, but also I, it's something that that matters because when you have somebody who's going in to a doctor and saying, hey, I, I need some help, my body is hurting. And that's a sports physician and their entire experiences in dealing with 
really heavy duty contact sports, they're not really going to be prepared to address the carpal tunnel issues or the fact that you are hunched over a computer 24 seven. That is a very, very different set of physical health based needs than a player in a traditional sport might have. And the fact that that industry exists today where it didn't before is just one example of how we're seeing an infrastructure buildup adjacent to esports that has player needs in mind. And that I think in and of itself makes for a huge improvement. There's also a lot more transparency. Um, I mentioned in my paper that I do think that the developers, these league owners, these are not like villains, right? They were not saying, Hey, we want to create this horrible environment for players. It was about, we want to give birth to this awesome industry. And we want to make this be able, something that can support itself and look at what they've accomplished. It's wonderful. It's great. It's hard to really say, hey, you really should have done a better job about making sure players weren't, you know, working under insane conditions because that's not really the focus that they had. And I think also they tried to implement rules that would help with that. The issue that I raised in my paper is that in particular, when you have here's the pro level play that's happening and then immediately below it, you have people who are trying to crack into that pro level space. What happens is if you are restricting too much the pro level players, and here's what you can do and not do, and here's what you can expect from your players, and here's what's not allowed, then, but you don't have those restrictions on semi pros. And then you also have, in connection with that, relegations and demotions and things that make it so that it's really interchangeable in terms of who's coming in. The, the combination of all of that makes it so that a player who's not working 14 hours a day is never going to be able to maintain that same level of play of a semi-pro who's trying to crack into the space who is able to work those hours. That was a big problem that we were seeing back then. And that's been addressed to an extent um, just by seeing a lot of these organizations that uh, invest more in players. You're seeing a lot more fan loyalty to specific players, which means that teams can't just swap them out as easily um, the contracts are getting to be a little bit more favorable in terms of longevity and not just saying, okay, we're just going to trade you away if this isn't working out in a few weeks. So, so a lot of these changes have started kind of making their way through it. And a lot of that just comes from that mainstream adoption. The more people that you have that are following a specific player, the harder it is to just eject them because you're like, Hey, here's this new up and comer. There's also a lot more leagues available, both on that really top tier of pro level league and like semi-pro to kind of pro, but like a smaller audience where there are more options for the top tier players to have a market that they can go and play in. And again, like I said, they don't necessarily have to go be professional players. They also have all these esports related industries where they can jump in and do shoutcasting, do coaching, do content creation. So there's more options, which then also means that the market is a little bit less saturated to where you don't have this turnover of, okay, we can just substitute in this new player who has no experience and just out with the old and with the new. When you had that really disposable environment, it became really hard for players to retain their spots without working those hours. Even if the teams didn't have any kind of a formal requirement or anything like that, imposing that obligation on the player, just the fact that it was so easy for them to be replaced meant that they had to work at that level. And I think that what we're seeing is a lot more awareness publicly of this issue, a lot more initiatives designed to put player health as more of a priority. The fan loyalty is happening. The mainstream acceptance is happening. The industry infrastructure is building up around it. All of that coalesces to make it better working conditions today. Obviously, like I said, we still have a lot of room for improvement though.
Yeah. Um, no, it's good. And it's good to hear about initiatives like that. Um, and I remember reading in, in your article about a 17-year-old League of Legends player who attempted suicide after basically revealing his, his team's match fixing. Um, but but it's, it's good to see that the industry has come a long way since then. Um, and keeping in mind um, our viewers and your, you know, they might have limited experience um, with, with legal stuff and your skill set being able to break stuff down simply. You mentioned um, in your 2015 paper that the esports industry would have to undergo substantial changes to meet its goals of having collegiate teams um, because the current model left it severely out of compliance with Title IX and NCAA bylaw requirements. That obviously me um, not being from America, I didn't understand a huge amount about that. So I was wondering if you could quickly break that down and, and perhaps what your thoughts are on the state of that now. Sure. Uh, so the, the biggest thing when you're looking at Title IX type requirements is this issue of discrimination, whether that's formal or essentially allowed, condoned. So women in gaming have traditionally struggled to thrive due to a lot of the toxicity that's that surrounds the gaming industry. Um, coming off of 2014 with Gamergate, that was obviously you know a big explosive moment within the gaming industry that I think brought a lot of awareness to some of these issues. But the reality is that to this day, women in gaming tend to face a lot of harassment, cyberbullying, and um, just general toxic behavior that certainly like all players experience a certain amount of that, but, um, women are more likely to receive threats, um, after the game or, um, have people trying to solicit pictures and things from them. It can be very uncomfortable. A lot of my fellow female gamers will actually even pretend to be guys when they're playing just to avoid anybody trying to hit on them. I can tell you my gamer tag was Kate the great. I never confused anybody about my gender. And as a result, I got so many inappropriate DMs or death threats against me or my family or comments like, well, you can't play this role because you're a girl. So why don't you go and do this instead? That is nothing that is new. What is a problem for US schools and collegiate programs is that if the school is offering a program that has a um, gendered element to where men are overwhelmingly more likely to be involved than women are. There is a question about whether we're starting to get into legally tricky territory. And what we know is that even though there's about, I, I don't remember the exact figure, but I think it's something like 46% of gamers today are women. Only zero to 5% of professional esports players are women. So there's a very, very big discrepancy between women in gaming and women in esports in particular. When you have a really disproportionate amount of involvement compared to the enrollment figures, so you know, in most of these schools, it's going to be 50-50 men and women, and you've got only 5% of your esports team is female, you're starting to run into some legal problems for the school meaning that the school has to engage in some active efforts to make sure that their program is not discriminatory and that if they're they're having this under enrollment it's not because of any kind of formal or tacit policy that allows this kind of environment to happen 
it's very challenging for schools to enforce that though, because so much of the communication that happens in game happens in an environment that the school has zero control over. If you think about the traditional sport where, okay, you're coming into um, a match and you've got the players and they're there. And now you've got some people that are heckling the women. Okay. Well, we can point to that and say, you guys leave. You're not allowed to be here much harder to regulate that in a game that exists entirely in a virtual setting, right? You have a, it, it's very difficult to say, okay, we're going to make sure that nobody is um, talking to you in an inappropriate way. All right. Good luck with that. I know a lot of 13 year olds that I play with who uh, apparently didn't get that memo. Um, so it's, it's just something that we've come to expect so much in gaming, this, this toxic kind of behavior that it's almost built in. So it's really difficult for schools to then say, okay, how are we going to combat this? One of the things that I've seen schools that have successful programs do to deal with this is they really approach esports as, again, more of this holistic environment where it is not only about empowering the specific players, but acknowledging that there are these other esports related careers so that it's not just about the, the person who's playing the game. It's about the coaching. It's about the shoutcasting. It's about these content creators. It's about reporting on these stories all of these different facets to esports that if you are looking at it more from that sense, it's easier to get women involved and it's easier to avoid having these toxic environments that are hard to regulate, especially once you get into somebody else's chat platform, it just, it becomes very challenging to prevent that kind of cyberbullying and harassment that happens. And while the school isn't responsible for that cyberbullying, of course, what we do see is that if schools are not taking appropriate steps to ensure that their women are not being discriminated against, and then they have that under enrollment, it can create problems, which has historically kind of been a deterrent for some of these schools to create these programs because they don't want to run into trouble with the law when they get 95% of their esports initiative is all male. Um, so again, we're seeing some of these changes being made to address that. But also just across the board, I will say that the gaming industry has been working really hard to consciously work on improving diversity. There are so many initiatives that are starting up. People are using platforms that they have in their positions of power to advocate for inclusivity and diversity. We're seeing um, major franchises dump players because they are accused of sexual harassment um, there's just so much less tolerance of that now in the industry than there was a few years ago. So again, this to me is an area where I think that we are moving in the right direction. I think one, these, these initiatives to try and make the gaming industry a little bit more inclusive are paying off. I also think schools are capitalizing on the fact that the esports industry has grown to expand beyond professional players and includes a lot more, um, allows schools to start bringing in these programs. And the other thing is schools are starting to recognize the value in having these programs that makes it worth taking the time to implement these policies in the first place. Um, I don't remember what school it was. There's one out of Florida that recently actually studied this and found that women are, I think, four or five times more likely to enroll in a STEM uh, discipline if they are doing esports stuff. And having more women in STEM has been a huge goal for a lot of schools for a very long time. So these, we can marry these two goals and use the fact that we've got this great esports program to help promote STEM uh, studies for women. So I think that what we're seeing is very encouraging. Again, I, I'm very surprised to see how quickly we got from 2014 Gamergate to here we are today in 2021 
We've got multiple colleges all across the U.S. that have really robust esports programs. I'm here in Oklahoma and we have OU has a really phenomenal program that they are building up that recognizes this holistic approach um, where a few years ago it was unheard of for any school to have an esports program. There, one school started offering an esports scholarship and it made national news everywhere. Now it's uh, something that's so standard that a lot of schools will just include it in their pamphlet. It's, oh yeah, by the way, we have esports to try and attract prospective students. So that's really neat to see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's positive to hear about those improvements. And actually, it's something that we've discussed with with other guests on the show. I mean, um, the second most recent podcast we released was actually with someone who faced a lot of toxicity. And earlier on in the piece, we had talked with um, the manager of a collegiate esports program, and, and he had to deal a lot with the exact same requirements um, of, of the Title IX stuff. So it's good to see that the industry is improving. And I guess on that topic, I wanted to briefly discuss um, regulation. So um, a few years ago, you wrote that the industry really needed to be regulated. And there are a couple of main reasons for that. One being, you know, if if the economic yield of the esports industry is not a reason enough, um, it's just purely because you know, the dynamic of players' rights with them having to, to, to work so much. Um, but but you brought up two really important things or, or that stood out to me a lot, which were firstly that many of the problems a lot of players face aren't actually because of internet or the games themselves, but just because of the way that those leagues are structured, um, which, is, which is interesting. And secondly, you brought up that it would be really hard, if not impossible, to, to craft regulations that would affect the current and, and future professional esports players, but not also simultaneously penalize those casual nationwide not-for-profit leagues. I just wanted to get your thoughts briefly on, on that and how you feel that that has evolved over the past sort of five to six years. Sure. Well, as I mentioned, in this space, we're still lagging very far behind in terms of regulation. And that's not even just esports space anything that's internet law related, anything that's video game law related. It's just, there's there's a big, long, you know, we've got a million ping happening in Congress right now in terms of legislating for video game. Um, but what I will say is that there has definitely been a huge improvement in terms of that quality of life for players, even without some of these regulations. And the reason for that is partially because, again, like we've discussed, there is a lot more infrastructure surrounding esports that makes it more possible today to create rules and regulations that will be supported. And because we've seen this big push to try to prioritize player health and recognizing that this is an, a need that needs to be addressed within the space. I've mentioned before that, you know, these, these developers, these league organizers and runners, these are not people who are like trying to make things bad for players by any means. And so they've actually been doing a pretty good job of being responsive to player needs. For example, after my paper came out, um, there was 
one of the things that I pointed to as problematic was the relegations issue where teams, because teams could be demoted out of professional level play, it just added to that sense of transience. So players who can just come in and out, it's not just players who were going to be able to interchange, it's teams. And so when you have that, that need to be playing 14, 15 hours a day, taking supplements or illegal drugs to try and stay on top of your performance is really high. The pressure is really there to make sure that you are just performing at this peak, peak, peak level that leads to player burnout. It's not sustainable in the long term, but they didn't need to sustain it long term at the time because we could just draw from this pool of new players. All right, this player is kind of burnt out. Let's dump them and we can bring somebody else in. And if this team is burned out, we'll dump them and bring in a new team. And even just in the time after my paper was published, pretty soon we saw these industries and these leagues starting to respond to that and starting to implement rules regarding how the teams could deal with trading players away time periods when they couldn't make these trades, time periods where they were kind of locked in and dealing with introducing more team permanence to do away with some of that, those other issues. So the, the developers and the league runners themselves actually have been a huge part of ensuring that we're starting to get to more of that player health. There's also this grassroots public pressure movement of people saying, hey, there's enough people who are fans of esports now who care about this, who are saying we want to see this that it's created a market demand for teams and leagues that are going to be more player conscious. And what that means is that you've got, even if it's not happening on a regulatory level, you're seeing more and more of a push to make sure that we are treating our players well. So I, I still think that there's a huge regulatory gap where we don't have a lot of law to address esports, but realistically, we're not going to see that for a very long time. And if we do, it'll probably to be it'll probably be to address the esports issues we have today and we'll get it 10 years from now and it'll be a complete nightmare to navigate. So what what we're seeing instead that I think is a good alternative is we're seeing this community driven pressure to improve quality of life for players, to improve um, transparency, to make sure that we're kind of putting things out there so that teams are more accountable to their players, leagues are more accountable to their teams, and fans are more loyal to their players, all of which creates a healthier environment. So even though we still have that regulatory gap, a lot of the issues that I was identifying in my paper have been either addressed or alleviated just because as people are working through these problems, they're coming up with solutions to address that. That's, um, yeah, it's an incredible understanding of what is actually happening and it's it's so beneficial having someone who's been through the start of this whole movement till now um it's it's really incredible i i wanted to ask you a bit more of a uh, you guys have been having some awesome legal conversations and i'm learning so much <laughs> as you guys go through it i wanted to ask you um a bit more of a you know a hypothetical if you were an esports god and you had all the powers you you could have, what would be a change that you'd make right now or you would adapt right now in the industry uh, for the better? <laughs> I would really like to see an organization in place that already had respect from the community and um, clout with developers that would certify teams and leagues um, for player quality of life. I think that this is a huge need that still is kind of unaddressed 
right now we're seeing a, a number of competitors emerge in this space. So I think over the next few years, we'll probably see some, some leaders emerging that will be in that position. But I mentioned that we've got these market-driven changes that are happening. And if we're looking to that instead of regulation to help address some of these issues, what would be really helpful for that would be if we had a neutral third-party body that's not connected with any one team or league or organization or set of teams or even country that says, look, we provide certifications that say that you as a team or as a league or whatever have complied with certain things that we would expect to see for players for quality of life. You've got, you provide them with access to healthcare and resources with, that will help them both with physical and mental health, which is another huge component that I still think is, is a little bit underserved in this area. So we've got physical and mental health that we are accounting for. We've got certain living conditions that we're allowing for people when they come into these team houses, it's going to be like, you're going to have access to quality food. You're going to have access to, you know, personal space, all this stuff. You're allowing players to have a certain amount of time to themselves every day. You're not requiring more than a certain amount of time that they be logged in or engaged in team-based activities, whatever those standards look like. And I think that this is something, by the way, that I'm not even really equipped to talk about. This is something that would need to be developed talking with players and players' parents, um, people who have experience in this space. And who have seen here's here are some of these major issues. What would they like to see as sort of the ideal? And then what would they like to see as sort of the bare minimum? If you had an independent organization that would certify these teams and say, if we give you this stamp of approval, then you can market yourself as a certified organization. I think that that would help a lot in terms of allowing the market that has a desire to see some of these players in better working conditions it would allow them to differentiate between teams where now it's really, really hard to do that. So I might want to support primarily teams that are gonna take these steps that are going to make sure that player health and safety comes first. But I don't even know where to begin in determining who's got that and who doesn't and what steps do I need to take. If you had an organization that could do that, you could also have leagues say, we require as a minimum that in order to be a franchise that participates in our league, you be certified at this level. I mean, that would be that would be so huge in terms of ensuring quality of life where it's not something that's being regulated by a government. So it is going to be responsive. It's going to be adaptive based on player needs and things that are evolving and changing over time. But you have a way to let people know who care about this, who want to support teams that are going to prioritize this. This is a team that cares about players. This is a league that cares about players so that when I, as a consumer, am making a decision about which franchises to support, which leagues to support, what games to support. I can see, look, here is one that absolutely puts player health first. And so regardless, again, of the variance between different countries and different standards between games, there are some kind of core quality of life things that we could look at and say, okay, even if it's just bare minimum, can we agree that this would be what we would expect to see? And asking teams to comply with that but then also taking that out of the developers or leagues hands to regulate, that is another big important element where it's not the developer's job to make sure that people are complying with their quality of life standards. They just say, our standard is that you do X, you get this certificate, but then we let the actual separate organization run what is involved in getting this certificate so that they have that ability to adapt where they're not driven by the profit motives that the developer 
in some cases has to be driven by, especially if it's a publicly owned company, they have an obligation to their shareholders to be driven by their own profits first and foremost. And you can't set that aside to say, well, but we really need to prioritize our players. And so we're going to take fewer profits to make sure that they're healthy. Ah, that's a tension and that's a tough one to resolve. So an independent body that can provide this kind of certification, that can provide this kind of assurance to consumers who want to prioritize player health would be great. That's what I'd like to see. No, that's perfect. I think, um, and it's a natural evolution, I believe, in traditional sport, right? You've got player associations, yes. uh, you've got governing bodies. Um, they're not always perfectly run, um, but in theory, mm -hmm. their design is there to protect different stakeholders in the industry. And I think we have seen the uplift in, in business culture um, of having a holistic approach to get more um, more shareholder value anyway. And I wonder if that will also happen in some respects. So um, Kate, this has been incredible. I, I've sat back and really learned a lot today, um, which I've loved. It's been incredible. Uh, unfortunately, we've got to say goodbye. Bef before we go, I just want to say, if any, how does someone get in contact with you and get your, your help or, or services or support? Well, I'm always available by email, which is kate at krinternetlaw.com. Um, you can also always find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also, as I mentioned, if you ever see a Kate the Great running around, there's a good chance that's me. That's a pretty um, standard name that I use in gaming. But uh, for the most part, email is always the easiest way because I do check that very frequently. Once we establish contact with email, I usually then will give people my Discord info because that's another one that I get notifications on my phone. Um, but the nice thing is that because my firm is so internet law focused, we're definitely um, able to contact people and stay connected with people online. So um, while I have you know, other ways of getting in touch with me, phone number, Email is normally the way that, that I'll respond to the most quickly. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciate it and I've learned a lot. Thank you so much, Kate. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Esports Demystified by Valor Esports. That was once again Kate Hollist, JD. You can connect with Kate on LinkedIn. Would you like to join the world's first global esports club? We're taking recruits. For more information or to contact us, head to valoresports.com. And in terms of social media, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram under the username Valor underscore E Academy. And you can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Valor dot esports dot academy.